Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning. It's good to see you. You never know Memorial Day weekend, what what it's going to look like, what we're going to shake out like, but I'm really glad that you are uh, here with us. So we're going to jump right in. We've got uh, Romans 9 uh, before us. Uh, So I am... I'm going to start reading. Uh, there's a decent bit to this, uh, so I'll just ask you uh, ahead of time. Uh, it's easy with a longer text to zone out super quick. Uh, instead, uh, if you would just follow along uh, with me, there's some great stuff uh, in here. So Romans 9, starting in verse 1, we will jump right in. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. For my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man and our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God, uh, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. We'll stop there for right now. We'll read a little bit more as we kind of get into it. This is the the word of the Lord. So last week we finished Romans 8, an amazing chapter filled with beautiful truth. Uh, And if you remember the last words of it or kind of the last thought that Paul gives us is I'm sure that nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ. If you track the movements in Rome, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, the, the brokenness in creation that we see in chapter 2 and 3 to how dark things get when humanity just kind of ignores God and does their own thing to how futile the law is to save us. Romans uh, 8 kind of felt like a triumph at the end when he says, hey, all of that's true, but still there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ. It feels like those words were words of of celebration, like you should be left cheering. Nothing will separate us from the hand of God. But surprisingly, Paul moves from celebratory words to words of tears and words of sorrow. There's a little bit of a duality for Paul 
that starts in chapter 9 that his heart kind of goes through. That though God has done something amazing for uh, many who were lost, uh, Paul is, is broken that not all of his kinsmen, not all of Israelites, not all of his brothers are going to be those who are saved. And he's wrestling with that, that not all will be redeemed. And we see his heart kind of breaking over this realization in these verses. So if you can feel the weight of that, you're celebrating, man, some who are far off are made brand new and they're in Christ, realizing that God's strong hand will never let them go. The ones that he saves and adopts and seals and sun eyes as he's cherishing that news. This is great. He'll never let them go. And God's done an amazing work. And then he's going, well, some of my people won't make it. People from my line, from Israelite blood, they'll not experience this. This is the truth that brings Paul some sorrow and some heartache as he wrestles with it. So what we're going to see is in chapters 9, 10, and 11, there's a pretty deep teaching over salvation. Um, And it starts with, in chapter 9, the the kind of polarizing or divisive doctrine of election. This is probably one of the most heated dividing uh, doctrinal issues that there is is, but yet it is all over chapter 9. So I just want to lay some ground rules uh, for us as we go through this, and then maybe if you have your missional community this week, as you deal with this text or with these thoughts with your brothers and sisters in community, the kind of ground rules, knowing how polarizing this is or, or difficult this text can be for some people or this doctrine, uh, the first thing I would mention is this doctrine is not salvific or closed-handed, right? You cannot believe in election and still be elect, right? You can still follow God whether you go, I I don't really like predestination. That's fine. And and we would say even for us here, you can be a member at Redemption's Hill and go, man, I I really don't love election and predestination. And the other part is this is a uh, an open space to be in process as well. If you're going like, I, I don't know where I'm at. Like I go from like, yeah, I get it to like, that makes me mad to like, I don't know that that's okay too. The second ground rule is this is really, really important, but here's what I've realized. This takes a long time for people to process deeply. The understanding of election and predestination is not a, aha, I got it. It's normally a long journey that kind of comes around to something. Uh, so with that, hopefully in the next couple weeks as we deal with that in this week, and then we'll deal with uh, the, in chapter 10, human responsibility uh, as well. Hopefully in the coming weeks, you'll just have, have the space to think of this and process, knowing that there's no doctrinal statement signing, right? At the end of chapter 11, we're not going to be like, who's in? Oh, you won't sign it? Okay, you're, you're not. You have space to kind of think through this. Uh, and the third ground rule is uh, be kind to yourself and other people no matter where you land on this. Be humble. Here's what I've read that just surprised me. Most every theologian that I've read hated this doctrine when they first heard of it. It offended them deeply. It bothered them deeply, but they dug deeper into it and still realized it was true. And here's what happened. They realized what they first thought it meant is not actually what it means. It means something completely else. And then they fell in love with it. So give space for that. Ask the Spirit to, to help you. If this is a doctrinal issue that you've wrestled with, or you're going, hey, I don't, I don't know. Ask the Spirit, hey, will you help me? Will you help me see what is true out of this? Will you show me what is true out of your word? Will you show me what you want me to, to see? And here's the other thing to keep in mind. Uh, we cannot decide how to view salvation by this chapter alone. 
If we only take chapter 9, we're going to think everything is up to God, uh, everything is all, uh, is all sovereignty, and we're going to undervalue and think there's no human responsibility, there's nothing we need to do, there's nothing that comes with that, and, and that probably wouldn't be good. And if we only read chapter 10, we'll do the exact opposite. We'll think that God's sovereignty isn't that involved in, in salvation, and it's all our responsibility and all our choice and all our doing. The hope is that we'll read 9, 10, and 11 and end up in a balanced view where uh, maybe we can understand that the sovereign work of God and is still congruent with the idea of human responsibility. God can have a sovereign will, and we can still have things that we need to do, and those don't violate each other. That's the hope that we can come out of 9 through 11 with. Uh, knowing that this is just some hard text for some people. Uh, so back to the opening, Paul laments that Israel, his kinsmen in the flesh, were not all saved. Remember, Paul was, was an evangelist. He's not just a theologian, and he's burdened for people to come to uh, the faith, for those who are far off to be saved, but his burden isn't for Gentiles and far off and other people. His, his burden is also for his own people. And he says, if I could... I'd almost pray that I'd be cut off so they could be saved. He doesn't actually make that prayer, but it's a thing that he's wrestling with. I, I would almost say take my salvation to save all of them. He's just wrestling with the difficulty of my, my family line in, in Israel and others. Not all of them are saved. And then he wrestles further and he says, it, it is Israel that God has adopted as his own people in Exodus 4. It's not the entire world, it's Israel. It's Israel that received the glory of God on Mount Sinai. The Shekinah glory was given to Israel, his glory to the people. It is Israel that God made his covenant directly with, not others. I will be your God and you will be my people. It was Israel that was given the law, the holy and good law. It was Israel who was given the privilege to worship in the Old Testament. And again, those words are specific. It is a privilege to be able to worship. It is God who let Israel move near to him. And it is Israel that God made his promises to send a Messiah. And it is from Israel who the Savior would ultimately come, not elsewhere. Paul's lamenting that Israel received all of this, this amazing blessing, and yet all of that that they received, they still may not experience salvation. Why? Because they did not follow or believe in Jesus. John chapter 1 says it really clearly. Jesus came to his own, but they would not receive him. Paul is gutted by this. They're so close. The law, the covenants, the presence, the promise, the adoption as a people, all of that is given to them. They're so close to the things of God. And yet some of them are so far away because they won't follow Jesus. I think there are moments, whether we are in Paul's situation or not, we should probably pay attention to that. Ask, is that your situation? Are you close to the blessings of God and other people who are experiencing the blessings of God and you see it all around you, but you're so close to it, but you're, you're not experiencing it as well? If, that, and if that's you, I, I would encourage you to wrestle with that today. With that intention in view, Paul pulls his go-to move in the book of Romans. He puts himself in the shoes of critics and he asks a rhetorical question. Does this mean that the word of God has failed? Does this mean that God is a liar, that he didn't win, that, that he lost because not all uh, ethnical Israelites are saved? Does this mean that God failed? And this is where Paul makes uh, what some would have considered a radical distinction back then. He says, no, God has not failed because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. 
hear those words because that can be like, what? Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, we have to define Israel properly in the way that the Bible does from this point uh, and in many others. Some who, who racially descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not true Israel. There are others who are not physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are. He says God didn't fail because he never promised to save every Israelite who ever lived. He always promised to save a chosen remnant of Israel and redeem his people with them. So there's an Israel by birth, people who are born into uh, Israel and have that heritage and have that line, and that is where they are, and they're not true Israel. And there's a people of a promise who are the true Israel. So there's a physical descent and a people of a promise. And Paul is showing uh, what the Bible has shown all along. God has always reserved the sovereign right to determine who his people will be. A, a racial line doesn't do this. A heritage doesn't do this. Your actions, your will, your gifts do not do this. God and his sovereign choice determines who will and will not be his people. If that is hard for you, just stick with me though. Moreover, God can and has chosen to include Gentiles or some Gentiles into true Israel as well. If you do not have Jewish lineage, that is where you say, glory to God, amen, because you would have no way to be grafted in to true Israel without this. So again, what's the distinction? There's the, the people from Israel, and then there's the true Israel, and, and how do we know the real versus the not, and the people of promise versus the, the not? How, how do we tell, since race isn't the distinction, Jesus, all who receive Christ, who submit and follow the Messiah, the one that God sent, they are the true Israel. They're the ones that make up the children of the promise, the ones who submit to, follow, and are saved by King Jesus. So his point in here, God didn't fail. He never promised to save every Israelite. He was going to create a true Israel, which Israelites and some Gentiles could be a part of. Then he gives two Old Testament examples to, to show choosing on God's part. And he does this to prove that this isn't some new theological idea that, that he just kind of came up with. Because if people are like, hey, how do you know? And this is the way we've always thought it was going to be. And he goes, well, let's just look at our patriarchs and see that this has been happening all along. God's sovereign choice has been happening throughout all of history. And the first example that he gives to kind of show this and prove this is Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham's sons. Again, one of the patriarchs. God promised Abraham that he'd have children one day. And through those children, they would be a blessing to the nations. And uh, that line would have an amazing thing. And it was pointing to Jesus that would one day come. And Abraham and Sarah were getting old. And they didn't have any kids, so God's promised, hey, you're going to have a line, and they're, and they're going to bless the nations. And they're like, hey, man, I'm old, and I don't have any kids. And he was, Abraham became 84, and nothing had happened, and no kids. So Abraham and Sarah decided to do what maybe we do. They decided to try and help God out. Hey, I know the promise that you gave me, and I just think maybe you're having problems figuring out how to do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you help me make your promise come true. Sarah brought Abraham, Hagar, their Egyptian maid to lay with. And lo and behold, she got pregnant with this super old dude's kid. Ishmael was born. Fast forward 10 years or so, uh, and Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah ended up having their own child, Isaac. This child was a gift from God. He is 
old. She is beyond the years of carrying a child, and yet God gives them a child as a miracle and a gift. The, the word is really clear. This is given not out of their human effort. They could not have done this. God gave it to them as a gift, and through this gift would one day come Jesus. So Abraham had two sons, two descendants. Remember the promise. You're going to have these descendants, and they're going to bless the nations, but God would not accept Ishmael. And he would not make his promise come through Ishmael. God chose to accomplish his purpose and, and bless Isaac only. Ishmael was Abraham's physical descendant. He was an Israelite, but not a child of promise. He was born into the family of Abraham, but was not considered the true Israel. Why? Because God chose it to be this way in his sovereignty. God brought forth a miracle child, Isaac, to use his line to bless the nations. Jesus, again, ultimately would come from Isaac's family line. Salvation would come not through Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness or their obedience or their trust in God. Salvation would come through the miracle of God, even through their sin and their disbelief and their trying to help God. The second example Paul gives, he just moves right down the family line, is through Isaac and Rebekah's children. They had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. This time, they're sons from the same father and the same mother. There's other people like, well, maybe he chose uh, um, Isaac over Ishmael because, well, you know, Ishmael wasn't uh, the, the kid from the two people the promise was made. Well, he goes, okay, well, let's look at this. Same father, same mother, literally shared the same womb at the exact same time, and yet one of them was chosen. The text says, though they were not born yet and they had done nothing good or bad, God chose the younger son, making the older Esau serve the younger Jacob. This would have been unthinkable in that day. Blessings and choosing and rights would have always gone to the, to the older. But God didn't do that. Going even further, Paul says, God uh, in this loved Jacob and he hated Esau. The text is really hard for our minds to, in the way that we're wired to accept because we can tend to imagine, well, why would this be? What's the reasoning? And we can tend to think, well, did Esau deserve that? I mean, what did he do to deserve that? That seems harsh. That seems difficult. Like, why, why would he do that? But the answer that we get is not one that maybe fully satisfies even our wrestle or concern. Paul says God did this for the purpose of his election. God, why'd you do it? Because it was my sovereign choice. Now, there are many who try and wiggle out of this. And I would say this, this is normal when you're processing election and predestination. I did it, and a ton of other people do it too when you're trying to wrestle, what does it mean? The first step of trying to kind of wiggle out of, of what you think it means is to begin to say, well, essentially, God didn't actually choose anyone. God looked forward through the corridor of time and he saw who would choose him and who would do good and who would be moral and who would be right. And he saw the person that would do that and so that he went back and retroactively he, he elected them before they ever did it, but, but they did it on their own and they chose to do it. And he just saw that they chose to do it, so he chose them, but they kind of chose first. Paul makes sure to say a couple things that make this impossible. He says specifically, God did this before they were born. And specifically, he says, he did it not based upon anything that the boys had done and not based upon anything that they would later do 
either. It wasn't about a, a current good or evil or a future good or evil. It wasn't about a, a, a future choice or a future action or a future faith or anything like that. He did it before they were born, before they'd ever done anything, and not based on anything that they'd ever do or anything that they would ever be. God decided on his own. We know this about Jacob again because Paul said so. And here's the other thing. We know it about Jacob because Jacob was a terrible human. Right? He did nothing great to make God go, I want that guy on my team. Jacob was a deceiver. And yet God chose this deceiver to love and bless eternally. God chose the sinner to make into a child of promise. This guy stole, he lied, he cheated, and he deceived. And yet God, in his sovereign choice still, chose him to be a part of true Israel. Now Paul is trying to exhaust all of the options that we may try and run uh, out of election with. Esau was the oldest. He deserved the blessing, but patriarch doesn't elect you. Esau was the true son of Isaac, but his line didn't elect him. Esau was the better man than Jacob, but again, that didn't get him elected. Race and line and birth order and achievement and morality and nothing else factored into the election except God's sovereign will. Election is based upon the reserved right of God to choose and do as he wills. Again, give room if that frustrates you. We'll explain this even more of why that might be later. Many get hung up on the terminology that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. They're like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. This idea of hatred, of like red-eyed, clenched fist, anger and rage towards someone is more of an exhibition of probably human rage than what they're talking about here. They're actually referencing Malachi, and he's trying to show an enormous gap between two realities. If you remember, Jesus in the New Testament said something that might sound a little bit similar in Luke. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, they do not hate their, their wife and children, if they do not hate their brothers and sisters, and if they do not hate their own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus isn't advocating hostility towards a family like the even the commandments, honor thy father and mother. He's not talking about this. He's not telling you to disregard your wife and your children and, and your brothers and your sisters and throw them all out. He's showing a matter of comparison about how we put one thing in front of the other, saying you cannot put family over me and be my disciple. You cannot put your children over me. You cannot put your brothers or sisters. You can't even put your own life over me and follow me. I have a better plan than you do for your own life. Put me first, and even all those other things will do better. God, in this same way, chose to put Jacob over Esau in the same way. He's not talking about this rage, wrath field, like crazy anger. He's talking about positions, about who is first and what is first. Now, still, that may not make you feel any better. You're like, yeah, that doesn't help. Okay. This leads to the next rhetorical question that may be a question for you as well. Paul asks in verse 14, okay, is there injustice on God's part for this? Is God doing something wrong? Is, is he wrong for his election or for his choice specifically, is there injustice on God's part for not choosing Esau, but choosing Jacob? Did he do something wrong by choosing the one and not by choosing the other? And Paul answers emphatically, by no means. 
By no means is there injustice on God's part. And notice Paul's point. God's own words in in Moses in the Old Testament is what he points to. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Paul's showing us what we deserve. As humanity in our sin, we deserve nothing but judgment for our sin. This is what the Bible declares. You deserve nothing. Yet despite what we deserve, God shows undeserved mercy to some. See, there's no case that we can make that showing mercy is an injustice. That God having compassion on some is is some undeserved, or, or by God having compassion on some who are undeserving is wrong. Paul drives home the point. Salvation depends not on human will or exertion. There is no action or decision or work or righteousness that we must muster to get saved. There's only God who gave us mercy for unknown reasons. God is the one who justifies the ungodly and saves the lost by his will. Again, we'll go into a little bit more of our mindset in a moment, but he's just stepping back going, if we all deserve wrath and God for some unknown reason shows some mercy, that can't be an injustice is what he's saying. Paul pushes the other side. Not only does God have mercy on whom he wills, he also will harden some whom he wills as well. He won't show them mercy. This is what God did with with Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to be God in his day. He wanted to to show that he was the ultimate power and authority. That's what was happening in the the plagues. And let my people go. And and, and, uh, and Moses and the, the plagues and all the things that were happening there is basically God's going, I am God, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going, I'm God, I'm not letting them go. I'll do what I want. This is a power drunk man who wanted ultimate power and ultimate authority trying to fight with the God of the universe. And God hardened his heart by letting him go. God didn't restrain him or hold him back. He let him run full speed into his desires. God pushed Pharaoh further into his own will, which hardened him even more. This wasn't a hardening of a man who had a soft heart. We have to understand this. Because we can tend to think that, oh man, he... He hardened a nice man's heart. No, he was a horrifically evil man. And he let that man run in the way that his heart already wanted to go. He did not restrain him. It is a scary thing when God does not restrain our hearts. Again, if you're trying to figure out, well, where does this fit in? Look at the rest of Romans that it's talked about with the fall of of debased mind and our wills and what happens to us and how we think and what we do in our hearts and what we say when we ignore God. When we run the full extent of our way, things get really, really, really dark. For some reason, God restrains some of that in culture and sometimes he'll go, I'm not gonna restrain it, run. Run and have your fill. And the unregenerate heart becomes even more hard and more calloused and more evil. This is what God did. Let's look again at verse 19. You'll say to me then, uh, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this isn't again, I, we hadn't read this part yet, sorry. 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desired to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This text is probably still a little bit unsettling for some. And here's what I meant before that we need to wrap our minds around. Because we tend to view things through a fairness scale that we create. What's fair? What do they deserve? What are they entitled to? And we we deem certain things fair and other things unfair as we live our lives. And even notice in the the language of our culture, uh, human right and all these things going on, that like all of that's talk about what's fair. What's fair and what do you deserve? Something in us thinks it's unfair that God does not show some people mercy. That's the tension with predestination and election. It doesn't seem fair that he wouldn't show some mercy. We feel most offended that one might get mercy while another might not actually get mercy. The next rhetorical question comes in a different tone from the other ones. The others were a mind kind of trying to figure it out where many of us may be just wrestling with and trying to see both sides and, and, and still just like, ah, I, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with it. And there, there's, a, there's an okay way to wrestle. But this last one isn't really in the same tone. This is an accusation. Why does he find fault? Who could resist his will? This is more like a, a person pointing their finger at God and declaring, you messed this up, this is wrong you're wrong. Why would you find fault in a person that you hardened their heart? Again, the problem is the assumption, though. God did not take Pharaoh's will. God didn't make Pharaoh do something that he already didn't want to do. God let Pharaoh run and chose not to restrain him or stop him. This isn't injustice. Have your way. This is God saying, okay, Paul, to the person who accuses God of doing wrong here, says this. Again, this is not wrestling. This is a declaration in the face of God. You're wrong. Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The translation, who do you think you are telling God, the creator, that how he created was wrong? This is like the molded saying to the molder, you screwed up. This is like the clay chastising the potter, right? The clay saying, I wanted to be a cup and you made me a bowl. Come on, what's wrong with you? Paul's telling us again, we can struggle to understand God. We can struggle to understand his actions and not understand his actions. And we can even not like his actions. But the moment we put ourselves into the seat of judgment, as a lump of clay and tell him, the creator, that you, the creator of all things, messed this up and you didn't create right and you were wrong, we've made a mistake. We've misstepped. We have overstepped our bounds. We've stepped out of our lane the moment we tell him that he does not have the right to do something. And hear this again. When we're going like, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. We place ourselves back into the shoes of Adam and Eve in the garden at the tree, believing that we could do things better without God or better our own way. 
You understand that's the functional thing that happened to the tree. I could do better. I have a better plan. I could do things better. I could be better. I could be happier on my own. The, the mind that says, God, you can't do that. That's wrong is the same mindset. I've got a better plan than you do. If you would have just let me write this whole thing out, I would have done a better job. Be careful. Be careful when the enemy whispers that in your ear. You have so much freedom to wrestle and go, I don't understand. I don't like it. It's heavy. It's hard. You have tons of margin. Be really careful about pointing your finger at God and telling him he's wrong, though. Paul uses the potter and the clay to show us God is free to create how he pleases. We have no right, no conceivable right to tell the potter that he messed up. We may not understand again. We're not to chastise the potter. And I'll be honest with you about my own story and chastising the potter. Probably 16 years ago, I learned about election for the first time. I grew up in a church that I don't ever remember election or predestination talked about. It wasn't a bad word. I just didn't even know the word, to be honest with you. Um, didn't hear it. So when I heard a person teach about the doctrine of, of election for the first time, I'll admit that what they said and what I thought of was a little bit of a straw man because it wasn't probably a great understanding of what it actually was. But when I heard it the first time, I said out loud in a room of people, if God is like that, he's a bully with a magnifying glass and I want nothing to do with him. Ooh. Thankfully, God is patient and kind with my prideful outbursts. He gave me time to go, hey, this is what I mean. Hey, this is what I did. It would have been his right to say, you worthless piece of clay, right? And who do you think you are? And yet he was patient and kind and gave time to draw my heart and show me what this actually meant later. So when I say, hey, be careful about pointing your finger at God, I say that from an understanding personally. I've done that. Thank God he is kind. Spurgeon says this, and I believe this is helpful as well when we're wrestling. I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. Right? He's speaking well into this in a way that hopefully shifts our perspective because I think that a lot of us view election from a different way. You're cool, you're cool, you're out. Innocent person, blah, you can't come in. That's not what it means. It means inside myself, there's nothing that would ever choose God on its own. Nothing. A thousand out of a thousand times, I wouldn't choose God. I would choose my way, my path, my will, my preference, my flesh. So God had to choose me or I'd be stuck in my sin. This is the understanding. He had to do it before I was born or I'd be stuck in my sin. I, I love the way that Spurgeon says this. Like he had to do it before then because it's like a comedy of errors afterwards and there's nothing afterwards that makes him go like, oh, that's my guy. No. John Stott says the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that anybody is saved at all. We deserve, hear me, it offends our sensibilities. We deserve nothing but wrath and judgment. This is what we are duly owed. If we receive what we deserve, judgment, 
or if we receive what we don't, mercy. In either case, is God unjust? In both cases, his, his hands are clean and he is fair and he is good. God as the creator has the right to give mercy to whom he'll give mercy to. The basis of the struggle with election, I believe, is the fundamental belief that we just aren't really that bad. This is at the core. We tend to hierarchy people and things. I'm a little messed up. I'm not Hitler, though. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I did this, this, and this. And like, we, we begin to tear off things and go, well, at least I'm not the worst of the worst. And we can begin to believe that sin isn't a big deal. And if we don't believe sin is a big deal and we categorize our life against others, we'll view other people with what we consider to be larger sins than, than ours. And quickly we'll go, well, I'm not that bad and sin isn't that big of a deal. And because sin isn't that big of a deal and my sins aren't that bad, I don't deserve judgment. Like I, I should probably get like grounded for a week or something. But wrath, judgment, come on. See, we get offended by the idea of some not getting undeserved mercy because down deep we feel entitled that we all deserve mercy. This is Paul's point. None of us would choose God by ourselves ever. So if God is to save anyone, he has to choose to give them faith to believe. If God is to choose anyone, he has to choose to soften their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. God has to make the first move towards undeserved sinners. If he did not, we would all be lost. No person would ever be saved. This is a theological understanding. God made the first move or no move would ever happen. Not towards him, at least. This is the understanding that I think is helpful for us. God chose to give compassion and mercy to the lost who would have never run towards him on their own. Why? I don't know. And he does it for no reason inside the person, just by his will. John 6, verse 44. Again, there are times where people, they say things, they mean well, just follow Jesus, just love Jesus. And, they, and what they're trying to do is like reject Pauline theology. They don't like election, like, no, I'm just going to roll with my homeboy Jesus. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. That same Jesus said the same thing. Our hearts are broken and busted. And the only way they can be made new is if God intervenes himself into the situation and does something. How does it all work? How does it all look? At this side of eternity, I'm... I, I don't, I don't completely know. Election is not about a capricious father holding willing people out of heaven. That's the thing that gets us. We're not that bad. And these people would have ran towards God, but he just didn't let them. We can view humanity as if we're all kind of good and we're all kind of neutral and in the right moment, in the right situation. Of course, people would weigh the pros and the cons and they would choose God, but the Bible says this isn't true. The fall has marred us more than that. So much so that no one can come. Literally, they cannot do it and would not do it. They would not choose to follow Jesus or come to the Father without the Father drawing them in, without him stepping in. I think one of the helpful analogies that I saw is, 
years ago is understanding a lot of people think that God is on the end of a plane of time and, and humanity is just running at him. And some he grabs and says, I love you. And others who are running, they want him. He just hits them and goes, no, I won't accept you. When the reality is God is at the end of the plane and everybody is sprinting the other way, most of them flipping in the bird in the reverse. And for some reason, God grabs some by the neck. Why? How? Whom? I don't know. But humanity is sprinting away, and God, by mercy, grabs those who do not deserve him and would never choose him for his glory, for our good, and to adopt us into his family. For this reason, I think election is primarily about the humility to admit out loud, I was that messed up. That's hard to do, because we can tend to like, wash over and gloss over and sanitize our stories and sanitize our hearts and our perspectives and make them feel better and look better and, and seem better, but saying I was that messed up that I needed God to step in and give me faith. I was lost, that I needed his holy hand to come and change me, and thanks be to God for reasons I don't understand he did. And I think at that point, then we can understand the one who has forgiven much loves much. Because you understand, man, I was that messed up. I had that much sin. I had, that was how big his forgiveness was for me. It stirs the heart and the affection towards God knowing, man, he did so much more than I could have ever thought. Again, election is not about deciding who is in and who is out. In all things, election is God's sovereign choice and we have no choice in it and no ability to understand or define who is or is not. And it's not about defining who is worthy. It's about accepting that God has ways that are higher than ours and he does things in a way that we won't fully understand on this side of eternity. As the text closes, if you read it later today, knowing that we can do all of it, the beauty that's pressed upon us is that God made a people who were not his people into his people by a sovereign hand. You were not mine. You were not following me. You were not with me, and I made you mine, and I'll never let you go, and I will give you glory in my presence, and I will make all things new one day. As we land, this is a declarative text. So Paul isn't begging you to do something. Like, you don't have to go home and do three steps from this. He's declaring to us a part of how God saves. God draws the hearts of people who are far off by stepping in and grabbing some. I hope that our hearts are captured in all that God would do this, that he would save sinful people who do not deserve it. He's unsearchably good. knowing that 9, 10, and 11 all need to be held together. Hear me in this. The worry is always hyper-Calvinism. There are going to be these monsters with pride and arrogance who hate others. The goal is not to stand in pride as the elect that you are proud or better. Why? He already said it had nothing to do with you. Puffing your chest and beating your chest. Elected me. He elects fools and morons and deceivers and liars to stand in pride 
and walk with a swagger because Jesus gave you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone is a move of arrogance and ignorance. The hope is that we would, with hands lifted high, say, thank you for saving me. And hear this, please save more. It's to go and speak the gospel to anyone and everyone who will hear us. Why? Because if you believed in an election, I think it would change some things. Because good or evil, race or worthiness don't save a person, we literally have no clue who God will want to save. The most horrific person you know, God may want to save them. No person is too far gone. No personality type is off limits. Our God saves the ungodly, all kinds of them. The ungodly like you, if you follow Christ, and the ungodly like me. So what that does is it lets us go around not painting pictures of whether we think people are elect. The best way to understand election is to speak to everyone like they're all elect and let God shake it out. That's what we do. We go and we declare and we pray that he will do his will. Here's one of the things that I want us to understand, especially if you're wrestling with human responsibility and our actions. God chooses. He also orchestrates his people to pray and declare. And those things go together. How will he save the elect? By his people praying and his people going. Well, why would we do that if he's already elect? Because that's how he's chosen to do it. When we do not pray and we do not go, how will they hear? The Bible still says beautiful are the feet that give the gospel, the ears that need it. These things go together. You're going, well, how do those both work? We'll ask him someday. I don't fully know. But that necessitates things like calling out to the Lord, even in your own heart, asking for forgiveness and and repenting of sin. Those still go together. This idea of hyper-election, I don't have to do anything. I'm saved. I got to get out a hell free card. I'm I'm never going to speak to anybody. I'm just going to do what I think. Everything's determined. That's not how it works. He balances two things that seem incongruent to us. How? I don't know. I don't. But the beauty is he lets us be a part of his plan by saying, see how much I've done for you. Pray like crazy and share like crazy and see what I may do through that, through hearts captured by an unsearchably good God. Again, I'll give you this nugget if you're still struggling. Paul says in 11, who can know the mind of the Lord? It's unsearchable. What he's saying is, you and I aren't going to have this whole thing figured out. I get the tension. How do those work together? His mind is bigger than ours. Someday I think we'll know. Someday it'll make a lot of sense. When the veil is removed, I think we'll go, oh, okay. I didn't see that. But until then, in faith, we move forward not in arrogance, but in hope, in declaration, and prayer. This is the hope. Man, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. Anyone can take. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes even with God's sovereign 
choice and sovereign ability to do what he does over and above. He still gives us beautiful rhythms to remember what he has done. It's what the table is for. That's why you take the bread and the cup. You remember your body was broken for me or else I would not be redeemed. Your blood has covered me or I would not be saved. I am safe. I am secure. I'm in your family. I'm remembering what you've done and what you promise you will finish doing one day. As we finish with a couple songs, I pray that you would take and hope you remember the goodness of what God has done for you, that heart would be filled with awe and wonder. And I would say this, knowing the hard step these texts are for a lot of people. It's okay if you walk out of here going, I don't know what I think of that. I think that's an okay place to be. If that's it, man, just ask the Holy Spirit, hey, will you help me? I'm still struggling with some of this. We help me worship you even in the face of not understanding at all. And I think it would be faithful and good to do that and kind. Will you stand with me?